Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you all for the outpouring of love, not just this morning, but um, on a regular basis. I feel I feel really privileged to be part of this group here, um, and I am rejoicing in the fact that we have confidence that Jesus Christ is building his church, that it doesn't depend on any one of us, but that together we as living stones are being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ um, into a beautiful creation of God where his spirit can dwell and where the, the manifold wisdom of Christ can be put on display. We've been working through uh, the book of First Peter. a letter of encouragement that he sent from Rome to far away what is now modern-day Turkey, to the Christians that were dispersed there. He calls them elect exiles. And he is reminding them of the salvation that they have been given, not only the salvation they are currently experiencing, but the salvation that is laid up in store, ready to be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. He wants them to remember that their hope is based not on their present experiences, because their present experiences aren't all that great, but on the spiritual realities that they have come to believe and understand through the supernatural work of God in them. The confidence of their future inheritance, not just what they've received now, but of their future inheritance, is giving them present hope and joy. In fact, he says it produces in them joy unspeakable and full of glory. Even though they haven't seen Christ in person, they believe in him. They've set their hope in him. Not only when their life is going smoothly, but when they are encountering trials and suffering and the testing of their faith. He is sure that God is working through their trials to produce joy in them. And it's not just lofty idealism, not just intellectual knowledge, but it's a present salvation that is working through them and in them and flowing out of them, and it produces holy conduct as we set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what First Peter is about. So last week we were um, in the second half of chapter 1, where Peter kind of turns from the foundational reality of salvation to its effects in our life, which is holy conduct. He says, since we have been ransomed from our former futile ways and since we call on him as father who judges every person impartially and since he has called us to be holy as he is holy, we can live out this reality of the gospel, not in conformity to our former worthless desires from which we were ransomed. So we didn't really do justice last week to the last um, few verses in chapter 1, so I just want to briefly point out a few things there before we move to chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 22 says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is as grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So he wants them to see that the word in them is effectual in 
purifying their souls, he says, through the obedience to the truth. I think that's interesting he uses those words. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. We might be a little more comfortable, theologically speaking, if, if it would say something like, through faith in the gospel, having purified your souls through faith in the gospel. But the reality is that we cannot separate obedience to the truth from faith in it. Faith in God's word results in a life that is conformed to that truth, which is the opposite of being conformed to our former desires, which he had talked about previously. True faith results in active obedience. Obedience to the truth results in a purified soul. The soul is just your inner self, the essence of your life. It's often just translated as life, and it's true. Belief in the Word of God, in the truth of the Word of God, results in a purified life in its outflow. For a sincere brotherly love, this is the result of a purified soul, is love that flows out. It's a pure, fervent, brotherly, sisterly love, love that comes from a pure heart. It stands in contrast to the natural emotional sentiments that that we have that are often obscured or clouded with our selfish and deceitful motives. It's love that is grounded in truth. It emanates from the truth that has transformed us. That's where its foundation is. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, earlier he said that God caused us to be born again according to his great mercy. Everything rests on this foundation. The new birth, the birth through the Spirit, through the Word of God. He says not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. It means it it can't fade away, it can't die, it can't be diminished. And he wants... You to see, or rather God, God wants you to see here how that everything from here out is centered on the reality of the new life that he has breathed inside of you. And he says it's through the living and abiding word of God. And then he goes into, because the word of the Lord endures forever. It's not like our flesh that is just for a short time. It's not like human glory. That is perishable. It's imperishable, incorruptible. So no one is born again without the word of God. It takes the word of God. It takes the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ for us to come to confront the truthfulness of our own sin and come in repentance to receive mercy. And he elaborates on what the word of God is in that it is it's not just something that you thought up. It's not just a private revelation of God, but it is the established word of God, the good news that was preached to you. It was brought to you by human messengers, and it's simply the message of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins through his blood, and new life in us by his spirit. Yes, brought through human messengers, but made alive in your hearts through revelation of the Holy Spirit. And since that is how that life came in you, He wants you to see that that life has the nature of the word of God, which is imperishable. That's how you've been born again. The life of God in you is living and abiding as his word is living and abiding. It's contrasted to all flesh, which is subject to futility, is perishable. 
Yes, it has a form of glory, but its glory passes away like the glory of, of grass that grows up quickly and then fades away and dies. So if you're feeling like your faith is being shaken and like you're on shifting ground, you may just need to take a moment and anchor yourself to this reality. The life of God inside of me is unshakable, like his word is unshakable. It's imperishable. It's as solid, as real, as alive, and as enduring as the word of God. Because that's how it came. That's the reality that produces holy life. So then we go to chapter 1. So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's telling them, put away the old. Your former way of life, he's already addressed that previously. Put it away. Cast it off. Cast off all malice, which is just wickedness, just general evil. We still have that propensity, even having been born through the word of God to a living hope, we still have that propensity to malice, wickedness, put away deceit, deliberate dishonesty, hypocrisy, which is just pretending to be someone that you're not, being out of touch with reality, what's going on in your life, envy, resentfulness or discontent, slander, it's just backbiting or lies or evil talk. Put those things away. Put off your old self, like it says in Ephesians 4, and put on Christ. Therefore, having put away falsehood. This is talking to believers, people who have put on Christ. He's saying, put away your old manner of living. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are all members one of another. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. This is a process that we walk through. It's not all instantaneous when we come to Christ. Wouldn't it be nice if there would be an exception to that? If we could just come to Christ and all that stuff would just be gone and we'd never have to deal with it again. But you know what? He wants his glory to be revealed through us as the life of Christ rules in us to overcome those former, what he calls, worthless desires in us. Put away all filthiness, James says, and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And here Peter says, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And instead, instead of letting those things rule your life, long for the pure spiritual milk. Like newborn infants. I love that he doesn't just say infants, but he actually says newborn infants. It's pointing to a desire in us that is instinctual. Like a baby that is born. They don't, they don't know why they crave their mother's milk. They don't think, wow, this is going to give me some really good biceps. They don't even know that they need it to stay alive. They don't know why they crave it. They just know that above anything else in the whole world, they want their mother's milk. It is their supreme desire that eclipses all other desires, right? 
Moms, you know this. You know that at 3 a.m. when that baby wakes up, there's nothing in the world that's going to stop them from getting what they want. They will make their need heard because they have this instinctual craving for their mother's milk. Have you ever tried giving them like a potato chip? They know not only that they want it, they know what they want. Their mother's milk. There's no replacement for it and they will not be satisfied without it. The pure spiritual milk. Now, don't confuse this with the metaphor in Hebrews where the the writer of Hebrews says that you should have already progressed beyond just consuming milk. You should be able to you should leave the, the basic principles of salvation and, and the word of God and you should go on to deeper truths. Because he says solid food is for the mature, milk is for babies. This is a different me- metaphor. This isn't talking about the substance as being simple, but it's talking about milk as being the word that brings us nourishment and we should have this craving just like a newborn baby craves that milk. It's the truth that we need for growing up into salvation. The point is just that we long for it. We crave it. We know that this is what we need above everything else. He says pure spiritual milk. So it's unmixed with our own ideas or doctrines. It is just the pure milk of the word of God. So the pure spiritual milk. Spiritual is a word that only the, the Greek word here logikos only appears I think maybe two times in the New Testament. And it can be translated as logical, reasonable, or spiritual, like spiritual worship that Romans 12 talks about. Um, But it has its root in the Word. The truth that we need for our spiritual growth comes from the Word of God. It might be a play on words um, referring back to verses 23 to 25 where he talks about the living and enduring word of God that has caused us to be born again. And now this same living and enduring word of God is what we need for our spiritual growth. That by it you may grow up into salvation. So although it is an instinctual desire, and I think we see it oftentimes in, in a new believer, you probably experienced it when you were a new believer. You wanted to know more. You wanted to know more about God. You wanted more of his word and you were hungry for it. And although it should be an instinctual desire, it is also a desire that is cultivated in us. You can replace it with junk food and the desire is going to diminish. But if you taste it and you develop a taste for it, you will see that it makes you grow up into maturity and Ultimately, salvation is what he says. Then he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He seems to be referencing Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. There are some things that you just have to taste before you know how good they are. Can you imagine trying to describe honey to someone who has never tasted honey? You know, it would be really difficult. You could tell them it's really sweet and maybe they would know what that means. But there's a there's a pure flavor in honey that you just can't really describe. And unless someone has tasted it, they won't know just how delectable it is. 
And the word of God is the same way. If you have tasted the goodness of God, you'll develop progressively more and more a desire for his word. Hebrews 6 describes believers as those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And Jesus lived this out in the most exemplary way. Remember when he was tempted by the devil and Satan told him because he was hungry, Satan tempted him to to turn some stones into bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He had learned through his life that this was, in fact, the most important thing for him was the word that came from his father. He said that whatever the father does, whatever I see him doing, that's what I do. He said the son can do nothing of himself unless it is what the father is doing. For what the father does, these things the son does in like manner. So that the world may know that I love the father, I do exactly as he has commanded me. We taste the goodness of the word. We assimilate it. It changes us. And it develops in us a desire for more. Like newborn infants, we, we develop a consuming desire that eclipses other desires in our life. And we can allow it to be eclipsed by other desires and to be squashed out just as well. As you come to him, a living stone. The, the verb tense here isn't just a once and done coming to him. It's not just talking about coming to him for salvation. But it is talking about repeatedly drawing near to him. As you are approaching him, drawing near to him repeatedly, you find him to be a living stone. Someone that you can anchor your life on. Reality, truth, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, the the contrast between rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God is emphasized in the original text because it's the same Christ. But he wants you to understand that depending on how you come to him and you will come to Christ one way or another, you will encounter him one way or another. But depending on how you come to him is going to make all the difference on whether whether you reject him like the Pharisees who were seeking a Messiah said, we don't want one that looks like that or, or speaks like that or does like that. We want a Messiah of our own making and they rejected him. But in God's sight, he was chosen and precious, perfect, of infinite value. The one on whom the the entire kingdom of God would be built upon. What did Paul tell the Corinthians? That the the message of Christ and the cross, the message of Christ crucified was foolishness to the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. As you come to him, a living stone, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He emphasizes here that we are among the called, elect by God, called to holiness, ransomed from our heritage of futility, purified through obedience to the truth, born again to the living word of God, and now we are continually coming to him, a living stone. And as you're drawing near, you yourselves... 
are being built up as a spiritual house. You yourselves, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We often hear how the temple of God is is in us, right? How we are the temple of God. And I think that we often think of that in, in individual terms. God dwelling in me. His spirit dwelling in me. His spirit working in me. But I think that sometimes we miss the bigger picture of us collectively being the temple where God dwells. He is building, he's, he's piecing together a dwelling place for the spirit with living stones. Lots of different shapes and colors and sizes, different gifts, different habits and problems. But he's fitting us together perfectly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is himself the chief cornerstone. To be a dwelling place for God so that he can put on display through his church the multifaceted wisdom of God. So we're built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Covenant, I think the people of God had a pretty reasonably clear focus on the presence of God, at least when they were following him, pursuing him. They knew where he dwelt in the temple, and they knew how his presence was manifest there, and they knew that to access him, they had to come in a very specific prescribed way. But not just anybody could access his presence. Not just anybody could come into the temple, into where God was. It had to be done by specific people who were born into a lineage of priests. That was the only way that you could go into the temple to offer sacrifices. You, as a, as a commoner who was not in this priestly lineage, had to bring your sacrifices to the, to the priest and he would offer them up to God for you. Otherwise, you couldn't offer a sacrifice. It was prohibited, in fact, for someone else to offer sacrifices on their own and in, in, not in accordance with the way that God had prescribed. Now, we come to him through Christ, the living stone, and are made a holy priesthood. That means we have access into the presence of God. That's not, that was not your birthright when you were born in the flesh. You were not born into a priestly lineage. That happens when you are born again. You are born by the Spirit of God. You're birthed into a priestly lineage that has access into the very presence of God. That can offer acceptable sacrifices. And Hebrews talks about that, the fact that these people kept coming with their sacrifices, the bulls and goats, and it was costly. And they had to take the lives of these animals They had to do it repeatedly, but now Christ has entered in once and for all to offer up himself for us so that now we can come in through the blood of Christ. We have full access into his presence and we can offer up acceptable sacrifices. That means that what God is doing in your life is also acceptable to him. Revelation 1 says, To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. It's his doing, making us 
priests and royal priesthood, priests to the kingdom of God. For he stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Remember, this is written to exiles, people who are outcasts from their own communities. A lot of them have been displaced, actually. Some of them may originally have been from that area in, in Turkey, but they were largely outcasts from their society because they had pledged allegiance to a new kingdom. And Peter's pointing back to the Old Testament promise about Christ that although he was rejected, he is chosen, precious, and the very foundation of what God is building. He's the foundation of what God is doing in their lives. And he says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The honor is for those who believe. The honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. He wants them to be clear on this. Either way, you're going to encounter Christ. Whether you believe or whether you reject him, you will encounter him. You can no more avoid him than you can avoid the force of gravity. The human response is to reject him. Yes, we're looking for a Messiah, but not like that. That's the human response. But to those of us who have been chosen, we see him as chosen by God and precious. It changes our response entirely. The honor is for those of you who believe. While those who did not believe and stumble because they disobeyed the truth, they've rejected the cornerstone, we have been qualified to share in his inheritance, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son, Colossians says. If we could just see the outcome of our faith, the glory of the eternal kingdom that is working in us, how insignificant the present sufferings of this life would appear to us. That's the central message of Peter. If you can get a hold of the hope that has been given to you, and of what God is building through you, and what he's doing in you, the sufferings that you experience are going to to become so small that they don't hold any weight in in comparison to the, the weight of eternal glory that's being worked out for you through these sufferings. And if it seems that we keep coming back to this, it's because this book is full of that. It's, it's full of taking our sight off of what's happening right now, the trials that we're going through right now, and putting our focus again on the hope that is laid up in store for us. And I, I think Michael mentioned it earlier. We see it dimly. We struggle with that dimness. where We have a dim view of the salvation that God has worked for us. Richard Baxter, back in the 1600s, wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And in it, he gives the description of a saint arriving in heaven and able at once to look at the reward and to look back at the suffering and the struggle that preceded it 
and to weigh the difference. And if, if you can look past some of the archaic English, I'll read an excerpt. I've abridged it somewhat, but the memory will not be idle or useless in this blessed work. This is speaking of when someone enters into heaven and sees what's in front of them. From that height, the saint can look behind him and before him. And to compare past with present things must needs raise in the blessed soul an inconceivable esteem and sense of its condition. To stand on that mount where we can see the wilderness and Canaan both at once. To stand in heaven and look back on earth and weigh them together in the balance of a comparing sense and judgment. How it must needs transport the soul and make it cry out, is this the purchase that costs so dear as the blood of Christ? No wonder. Is this the end of believing? Is this the end of the Spirit's workings? Have the gales of grace blown me into such an harbor? Is it hither that Christ has allured my soul? O blessed way and thrice blessed end, is this the glory which the Scriptures spoke of? Are all my afflictions, Satan's temptations, the world's scorns and jeers, Come to this. O oh, vile nature that resisted so much and so long. Unworthy soul, is this the place you came so unwillingly to? Was duty wearisome? Was the world too good to lose? Didst thou stick at leaving at all, denying all, and suffering anything for this? Was thou loath to die? To come to this, O false heart, thou hast almost betrayed me to eternal flames and lost me this glory. Art thou not now ashamed, my soul, that thou didst ever question that love that brought me hither? That thou wast jealous of the faithfulness of thy Lord, that thou suspectedst his love when thou shouldst only have suspected thyself, that ever thou didst quench emotion of his spirit. And that thou shouldst misinterpret those providences and repine at those ways which have such an end. Now thou art sufficiently convinced that thy Redeemer was saving thee as well when he crossed thy desires as when he granted them. When he broke thy heart as when he bound it up. No thanks to thee, unworthy self, for this received crown, but to Jehovah and the Lamb be glory Forever. What will it be like? When we come into the presence of Jesus and we say, This. This is what I almost thought was not worth the struggle. So the honor is for those of you who believe. That's what Peter is telling them. The honor is for you who believe. You who have set your confidence and your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, who is chosen by God to be the chief cornerstone. But to those who have rejected him, to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a rock of stumbling and offense. Either way, you will encounter this stone. 
whether you cast yourself on him now and build your life on him or whether you reject him and he will become a stumbling stone and rock of offense squarely in your path. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. A life that is disobedient to the word of God will stumble on Christ. And as Hebrews 6 says, become fruitless, bearing thorns and thistles, its end is to be burned. But we're convinced of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. And he goes on into verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may claim the excellencies that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a chosen race. All the talk about races, let me tell you, there's two races. There are those who reject Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and there are those who cast their life on him and believe. And the latter is the race that God has chosen. That is your new identity. It's not your culture or background or the color of your skin or anything else about you. It's the fact that your life is anchored on Jesus Christ. That is your new identity that you were born into. You are a redeemed race, royal priesthood, priests of the kingdom. He has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to our God. You are a holy nation a people for his own possession. And in verse 10, he goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. I want you to take a look back and see where you came from. This is not, this is not your natural birthright. You weren't born into being God's people. I don't care if you were born in a Christian home. And I don't care if, you're, if your life looked relatively good. This is not your birthright. You were not a people. Sometimes we just need to stop and look back and remind ourselves of where God brought us out of. Because the spiritual reality is that we were born into sin. We were born dead. And we who were dead have now been made alive in Christ. We were not a people. And now we are his own chosen people. We had not received mercy. We weren't born into mercy. But God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he called us and drew us to himself and gave us repentance, gave us eyes to see the, the spiritual deadness that was a reality in us. And eyes to see the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were in darkness, but he has brought us into his marvelous light. That simply means that you were not able to see the reality of the gospel because you were dead and you were blind. You were in darkness. That was the natural condition of your heart. And God has taken you out of that darkness and transferred you into his marvelous light, which simply means that now you can see and understand the reality of the gospel, salvation through Jesus Christ. Redemption through his blood, ransomed from our old worthless ways, so that you may proclaim, show forth, 
put on display the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's, that's why he called you. So Monday morning rolls around. When you wake up, just think about that. I've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ so that I can show forth the excellencies of him who has called me. That's your job tomorrow. Just put it on display. It might not look amazing to you, but the reality is that God is putting himself on display through you tomorrow. Monday. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul because you have been chosen, because you are a people of God now through his own choosing. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Be rooted in this part of your identity. You are Strangers and exiles, you don't belong to the culture around you. You belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, that means you don't belong to yourself. All those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Christ, you don't belong to the culture that surrounds you. You belong to a different kingdom. And he's reminding them of that because for a lot of them, the pressure is on. The heat is on. There's a lot of pressure to conform, to just kind of disappear into the woodwork a little bit to reduce the intensity of persecution that they're facing. And in chapter 4, he tells them that, that the people around them, the Gentiles who don't know Christ, are surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living. And so they speak evil of you. Why? Because the gospel has transformed you, transformed them, given them a new identity. He's saying embrace this identity as a foreigner. You belong to a different kingdom. You belong to Christ. And I think that as we identify, as we embrace our identity as strangers and exiles, people who are displaced, people who are living among a kingdom, but part of a different kingdom, we will find that it's easier for us to war against the desires of our flesh, which are warring against our soul. Because he says the desires of your flesh War against your, your soul. The word desires here is not bad by itself. Desires can be either good or bad. You have, you have good desires. Sometimes you want to bless someone or help somebody out. That's a good desire. But the desires of your flesh, he's saying the desires that are coming from your old man, wage war against your soul. And they will destroy you. They will squash out the life of Christ that is in you if you yield yourself to them. Romans 7, Paul says, I know that that in me dwells no good thing. In me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. It can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provisions for your flesh 
to gratify its desires. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, Galatians, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, 1 Peter 1. Because you know that you were ransomed, you were bought from your worthless past ways through the precious blood of Christ. And those desires of your flesh are waging war against your soul. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said that there's the, the word that, that falls among thorns and the thorns grow up and choke, choke it out. You know what those thorns are? He mentions a couple things that the thorns represent. Cares of this life, that's one. Deceitfulness of riches. Pleasures of sin or the desires for other things. I think the ESV just says the desire for other things. Look at how broad and general that is. The desire for other things than the word of God choke out the word and cause it to be unfruitful. They can look like they're the best desires in the world. Temporary focus on reaching your financial goals, establishing your business, um, getting your family grown up. What, whatever those consuming goals are in your life, those desires, those desires for other things will choke out the word of God in you if you give yourself over to them. Some of us just need to go to God in, in honesty and say, God, what are the things that are choking out the desire for the word in me? Because I look at my life and I don't see much desire for God's word. I see that it's been choked out, that it's become really small. I don't long for the pure spiritual milk of the word like a, like a newborn baby longs for its mother's milk. I don't see that longing in myself anymore. What is it that has choked out this desire in me? Those desires of your flesh are waging war against the desires of the spirit and against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, he says, keep your conduct. That means your, the outworking. Your entire life among the Gentiles should be honorable so that when they look at the way you live, they'll glorify God. And it says on the day of visitation, there's a couple ways to look at this. Some people believe that it means on the day of visitation when God comes and shows them mercy and, and causes them, brings them to repentance, causes them to be born again, and they'll see, wow, I see what God was doing in that person that I was speaking evil of formerly. And, and the other view is that this is talking about when Christ returns to bring everything to judgment and set everything right. That on the day of visitation, the very people who spoke evil of you will glorify God because of the good deeds, the good conduct that they saw in you. I, I think it probably means the latter. It may mean both. Because the reality is that, that either, either or can be true. Someone comes to repentance and, and we see it especially in, in places where there's overt persecution of Christianity. And sometimes it is the patient endurance of the saints that brings a persecutor like, like Saul 
to the end of themselves and they say, what is this that these people have? I want that too. But for those who do not come to that place, on the day of visitation when Christ comes to bring everything to judgment, those who stumbled on the rock of Jesus are going to glorify God because of the good conduct that they saw in your life. I, I feel like this fits with the, the rest of the book. Peter is telling these believers that even though they're facing opposition in the culture that surrounds them, hostility to the truth, hostility to their way of life, they should keep their conduct honorable. Another word for that is beautiful. Keep it, keep it lovely. So that those who observe you will glorify God because of what they see in you. The honor is for those of you who believe. And I think we're going to just stop right there um, instead of going into the next section where we have some instructions on how this looks, what this actually looks like when, we, when we're living uh, among secular governments and um, cultures that are, that are not aligned with the Word of God and how it looks in our relationships um, both in the church and in family relationships. He's going to give us some profound principles that will practically shape our interactions with each other. But for now, this week, as we go and live out the power of the gospel through holy conduct, remember that you yourselves as living stones are being built on the cornerstone of Christ into a building where Christ can dwell and where the manifold wisdom of God will be put on display to the people around you and to principalities and powers. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. He chose Jesus Christ as the cornerstone where his entire kingdom for all of eternity is being built on this cornerstone. Of Christ. That's what Peter wants us to see. That's the reality of the gospel. Redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Being ransomed from our sinfulness through the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus who was willing to give himself up as a sacrifice for us. Thank you for choosing us as your people, for making us your elect, chosen people who are living as exiles and who have set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to live that out this week that our conduct would show the transforming power of the Word of God and that we would lay aside, put away the passions, the desires of our flesh so that the Word of God could increase in us. Help us to long for the Word, the pure spiritual milk, like a newborn longs for her mother's milk. I just pray, Lord, that you would grow us up into maturity and into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, every one of us. And we thank you for what you are doing in us and through us. To you belongs all the glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen.